If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 8. I hope you have already uh, been encouraged with your worship guide in your hand for just a moment, if you will, turn back to um, to the song that we sang, Grace. And look in verse 3. Uh, it echoes uh, our assurance of pardon coming from Second uh, Corinthians. Your grace that I cannot explain, not by earthly wisdom, the prince of life without a stain was traded for this sinner. Um, if you have trusted Christ, uh, it, it may do us well to remember that verse, uh, most especially remember the assurance of pardon, uh, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, hear that in light of uh, the covenant of works. And I will say this, and this is just for, for you. I hope you will appreciate this. Um, you probably will not hear and may not have heard many times in the course of your life uh, in, uh, in your time of gathering uh, that God established the first covenant with man as a covenant of works uh, we push away from that but there was a, there is there was and remains in that respect uh, a call to perfection and when adam no longer met that standard and he sinned we were all made imperfect and we have a tendency to justify that in some way uh, I want you to know that there is no justification for that. Uh, as there is no justification for sin, except the justification that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, for those who were able to be here last week, you'll recall that we took a broad look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John Stott wrote uh, that it is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers uh, to do. Uh, I would argue uh, that he uh, enabled by the power of His Spirit that changes the heart of man or woman, boy or girl, uh, that trusts in Him, enables them to do that. Uh, our children who were in CDM this past week, uh, you'll recall uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. Uh, as we stated last week, uh, what we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount is not a prescription in how to become or even to continue as a Christian. Uh, if you read it this way, and if you've happened to have read it that way, uh, it becomes nothing more than a law to keep to earn righteousness. In which case, its demands will plummel you. I hope you sense that. Because you will never attain what we considered earlier in our confession and just referred to a moment ago. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yet having stated this, uh, we are able to say that it certainly is a description of the heart and values and doings of a Christian. The one who is trusted in and is continuing to trust in Christ. Uh, but even with just a cursory read, any Christian will honestly state and, and this is mine. And though I trust Christ, my life doesn't always reflect these attitudes. I'm constantly convicted in some way and in many ways in these areas. And if you are one of those who can make that confession, then you need to know that you stand in large company. Um, maybe even in the whole of this congregation here. Uh, and if you are, and you stand in this, co this company, just be reminded that this was the point. And Matthew didn't end his gospel with the Sermon on the Mount. Thankfully, he went on to tell his audience and us how this description is and can be possible. Because he takes us to the cross where Jesus suffered and bore the wrath of God for the sin of those who would trust in Him. And then Jesus rose from the grave on the third day after His death. And then He addressed His disciples before returning to heaven and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I hope we see this because the people sensed Jesus' authority. Though not in its fullness, because after his sermon was complete, if you'll look there in chapter 7, he said this, there toward the end, And when Jesus finished these sayings, in verse 28 of chapter 7, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And not as their scribes. Now, how did they know and sense this authority? Well, it's communicated throughout his sermon. First, he pointed them to the fact that he came to fulfill the law. And we saw last week that while he did keep the law, and part of the fulfilling of the law was his keeping of the law, that wasn't the entire essence of what was being said. No, he was the one who fulfilled the law because everything that the law pointed to, everything that the prophets pointed to, all the ceremonial law pointed to Christ, this one who would come. 
And then he repeatedly said over and over through a part of that sermon, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And, and I want you to notice again that as you go back and read that sermon, that he didn't say, you've heard it said, but let me explain to you. He said, I say to you. And, and then if that wasn't enough, we get to the end of the sermon. And this is what he says. And look back in chapter 7 and verse 21. Because this is the, the foundation for us looking at 8 and beyond. Chapter 8 and beyond. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear that? He states emphatically that he is the one who ultimately will declare whether a person will enter the kingdom of heaven. He will determine if a person has done the will of of the Father. That's the authority that He has. He is the supreme King promised by God who is establishing a new kingdom that has been and will be consummated and made complete in eternity. And it's a kingdom that's unlike any other kingdom that has been known. The proposition that Matthew is making is that he holds this authority. The authority to declare whether a person will enter the kingdom of heaven or not. Now, in your worship guides, I included, because we'll be here for the next several weeks, I included kind of a, a, a comprehensive, broad view of points there as it relates to the authority. And the reason, the authority of Jesus, and the reason why is because when we are looking at chapters 8 and 9 and 10, this is the way it breaks down. And I want you to see this so when you're reading it, you'll understand Matthew is very specific in what he is saying and why. So you'll notice today, and we will not get through all of this, we will not get through, uh, we'll only get through verse 13 of chapter 8 today. But if you'll look at chapters 8, 9, and 10, he has a section that includes three miracles, and then he pauses and then he speaks about two would-be disciples. Then he records three more miracles. And then he pauses again and speaks about two accounts regarding disciples. And then he records four more miracles. And all of these are revealing something about Jesus' authority. And then when he gets to chapter 10, the last part of chapter 9 and chapter 10, he goes full bore into who his disciples are and what they are about. And he starts sending them out. So I want us to look at, and these will be the points that Matthew is seeking to make, these points that he's making. And I want us to look at them and then we'll draw two Conclusions, and they're in your, they're in your worship guides. Jesus' authority is all-encompassing. When we say that Jesus' authority is all-encompassing, what we're saying is, is that everything in heaven and on earth is under the authority of Jesus. Nothing is outside of His authority. Nothing exists that is outside of His jurisdiction. Now, even here, there's nothing on earth 
that has all-encompassing authority. Even the authority of the person or agency of the United States who has the most authority is still restricted to a certain jurisdiction. Jesus' authority is all-encompassing. Number two, Jesus' all-encompassing authority is accompanied with an all-encompassing power. When we speak of Jesus' all-encompassing power, we're saying that He has un, is unlimited in power. In other words, He is all-powerful. So there's never a time when He is unable to exercise His authority for any reason, most especially for, due to a lack of power. His authority is matched by His power. They're both all-encompassing and without limits. Why? Because He's eternal. We ought to know how important this is because just over the last several years, but particularly even in the last months, what have we seen? Well, we've seen folks who have had authority who were unable to exercise their authority because they didn't have the power to exercise their authority. We've seen in recent days sections of cities that have been overtaken by those who did not have authority. While those who had the authority to uphold order and even try to restore order were not able to do so because at that particular time they didn't have the power or the force to do so. But that's not the case with Jesus. And Jesus' authority is exercised to accomplish his will. Jesus uses His power in exercising His authority to accomplish His will. His will is the sole subject of His authority. And His will cannot be subverted or overthrown because His authority cannot be overthrown because His power is eternally unmatched. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Every authority that we know on earth has some subject to that authority. That authority is either to, uh, to maintain a certain order, uh, to, uh, if it's authority in business, to accomplish a certain task, and that individual who is given that authority or that group of individuals, they have a certain task. Their authority is limited to that, and his authority is all-encompassing, and the sole subject of his authority rests in his will to accomplish his will. And then the two concluding things that we should draw from this, and then Matthew argues this, and we'll see this as we work through this text over the course of the next several weeks. Jesus' authority is God's authority. Because Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead, His authority is God's authority. When we, each week, gather and we worship a triune God, and we say over and over again, and we have stated in our catechisms, boys, girls, moms and dads, listen. When we state those things as it relates to who Jesus is, it necessarily means that He is God. And His authority is God's authority. And then finally, because Jesus' authority is God's authority, then what can we conclude? We should conclude that He is to be trusted 
and obeyed. He is to be longed for. He is to be sought after. He is to be, he is to be pleased. And this is Matthew's argument. Now let's see how the argument unfolds. And that's what we want to do. But not just how it unfolds. Listen, how it unfolds as it relates to Jesus' own purpose. Go back. Let's don't lose grounding on this. Turn back Matthew chapter 1. Look in verse 21. The angel tells Joseph, She, speaking of Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, don't lose grounding. That, that's, our, that's our benchmark. For those of you who are not familiar with that term benchmark, when uh, there's always a benchmark somewhere in your neighborhoods that you live in, somewhere in the street or somewhere there is a concrete monument, there may be several of them, that are established. Surveyors, engineers will know where they are because they are marked and noted on a map. They go to that benchmark, and that benchmark becomes the reference point of everything that they do as they are surveying lots and checking lines and all of those things. There is that benchmark that is there. There's that monument. There's that benchmark. It is established at a certain elevation, so it is not just for angles and directions, but it is set at a certain elevation. And at that point, everything can be determined, high and low, left, right, front, back, whichever direction you go. This is the benchmark. He came to save His people from their sins. So let's look. Chapter 8. Begin reading in verses 1 through 4. And we're just going to take it section by section. When he, meaning Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And I want you to pay attention here. In verse 7, chapter 7 and verse 28, just back, back up. And when Jesus finished these saying, the crowds were astonished. And here we see that the crowds followed him. You see us in the midst of these great crowds that particular individuals approach Jesus. You'll notice these great crowds that come to Him. And along the way, some of those crowds follow Him. And later on, some of those crowds seek to harm Him. But notice that He has crowds coming around Him. And it's not that He's not concerned with crowds. But I do want you to see and to understand that even when you read the New Testament and you see crowds around Him and you see them following Him and doing whatever it is that they're doing at that particular time, and with the exception of a couple of the miracles that we have where He feeds large numbers of people, every other instance in Scripture 
that talks about Jesus and his relation to people, he's always relating to individuals. I hope you hear that and see that he is concerned about individuals. He really does care about the person who is suffering. He cares about the outcast. He cares about the marginalized. He cares about the broken. He cares about the sinner. And I can say if that is true then, that necessarily means that he cares about who? Well, he cares about you. And he cares about me. And he cares about our sons and daughters and our grandchildren and our moms and dads and our cousins and our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and the people who live uh, in this community. He cares about them. He cares about every individual in all of the world. He gives himself to caring about people. So let's just be reminded in the course of giving consideration to the crowds. The crowds are made up by individual people for whom he cares about. I think that has something to say to us about our own view of the community that we live in. We see a large number of people, and even when we call on, talk about praying for our community, a lot of times we are talking about this broad group of people, and we're not seeing them face to face, and we don't know of all of their hurts. But the fact is, is that our mission, in our mission, and who we are as a people, if Jesus is concerned about individuals, we ought to give our lives to be concerned with individuals about their hurts and their struggles and their hardships and their challenges and their sicknesses and their pain. And most of all, to care about them in their sinful condition. But apart from Him teaching about the crowds, as we've said, He gives attention to the individuals. And such was the case here with this particular leper. We're not told the man's name. But he was an individual that somewhere in the midst of the crowds, he comes out, an outcast of society, a particular individual, not a crowd, but one man. The text doesn't tell us anything else about his life. But this is what we know because of what he is and the condition that he's in. He was a leper, which meant that he had no contact with his family, his community, his synagogue. And what is even more he had no business being where he was and had and knew absolutely that he had no right to approach Jesus or anyone else, but particularly Jesus. He couldn't live in his village. He couldn't worship in his synagogue. He had no contact with his priest. He was put outside of the community. The emphasis here is on the fact that he is unclean. He's unclean. If you'll recall just a moment ago when we read Ezekiel and what he had to say, what Ezekiel said and what the Holy Spirit was saying through Ezekiel was that the Spirit of God had come to do what? To make clean, to cleanse. And here we see the point is, is that this man is unclean and that Jesus makes clean, cleanses this man's uncleanliness. Now I want you to notice three things about this man. 
He knows he has no right to approach Jesus. But here's why. He recognizes the authority of Jesus. He recognizes the authority of Jesus. Notice that he kneels before Jesus. He approaches him in a spirit of humility. His posture is one that acknowledges his condition. And notice that he doesn't ask Jesus to be healed. That's not the term. Look at it. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's not asking for healing as we may think of healing. No, he sees his condition for what it is. He doesn't see his condition as a disease. He sees his condition as he had been taught and understood his condition to be, and that was that he was unclean. And he, because of his uncleanliness, he couldn't go to the synagogue. He couldn't go to his family. He couldn't be uh, in with his community. He was set apart. He was put aside. And second, he doesn't question the power of Jesus. Notice what he says. His first, if you will, you can make me clean. It wasn't, could you clean me? Can you clean me? That's not what it is. He's asking, will you clean me? Because he does not question his authority or power. He said, you can make me clean. And then the third thing we see about his condition is that either way, he knows that it is Jesus' will. Notice what he says again. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Meaning that my, I am in the condition that I am now because you have willed it so. But if you will, you can change my condition. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will. And we see from the text, what? Well, Jesus willed to cleanse him. Jesus said, I will. And then he told the man, stated upon him, be clean. Then Jesus told him to go show himself to the priest and offer the gift required by the law, what? For a proof to them that he was cleansed. Now I want you to make this connection. Matthew selects this particular incident to communicate where he communicates it. Why? Because Jesus, he has just finished telling us what Jesus taught regarding what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. And we have said that it was not a prescription of how to be clean. It was a description, proof, positive for those who are clean. For those who have trusted Christ. For those who have submitted to His will, and the proof of it was the changed heart. So that this person, if you will, if you'll go back, and this is kind of the broad statements, go back to chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All pointing to what? A changed heart, a clean heart, made clean by the Spirit of God, by the will of God, by the power of God, 
And that was the proof. And what he's doing, he's telling this man who is now clean to go and to keep the law as it had been given to him and make an offering and offer that offering to the priest not so that he can be clean, but as proof of the fact that he has already been made clean. You see it? Matthew was communicating this. He was pointing to the fact that Jesus had the authority to clean. He was the only one who had the authority to clean. He had the authority and he had the power to clean. He says, if he wills, he can. It's a beautiful and wonderful display of the unclean outcast being made clean, being restored. How do we know he was restored? He goes and he gives proof of the fact that he uh, is now clean. And what is he able to do? Well, he's able to go back and be with his family. He's able to be back with his community. But that's not the point either because it would make no difference in the course of discipleship if your community cast you out and if your family cast you out as long as you are reconciled and restored to the Father. And notice how he is restored. He goes back and gives evidence of the fact that he is clean. And now he has connection with his priest who is what? Notice Jesus hasn't died. He has not rose again yet. He has not ascended yet. The Spirit of God has not come yet in that way. So what is this man still, still necessary to have for him he has to have his mediator and the priest served as his mediator so now that he is restored he has his priest to mediate for him which now is his connection and his restoration back to the presence of God but when Jesus cleanses us from our sin we're immediately reconciled to God and we have access to God by and through Jesus, our eternal high priest. John wrote this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to do what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul wrote in Rome, to the Romans, in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The point that Matthew was making is that those who are unclean are cast out of, they are outcast from the presence of God. Jesus has the authority by His will to cleanse them and to restore them. But let's look at what else He has to say. Look at verse 5. And when He had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to Him, appealing to Him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And He said to him, I'll come and heal him. 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and from west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Uh, historians tell us that uh, there were no Roman garrisons that were actually housed in Palestine for, for whatever reason. It was a decision uh, that was made by Rome, probably some kind of political agreement that had been made with, uh, between Rome and the residents of Palestine, the Jewish people. But Herod, and we've heard of Herod, Herod was granted the authority to secure centurions and employ them almost like a, a, a group of mercenaries to some degree a group of a, a group of mercenary soldiers he was allowed to employ them uh, and to have them maintain order in Palestine in other words uphold the authority of Rome and exercise the authority of Rome what is certain here is that this centurion was a non-jew he served under the authority of Herod who had received his authority from Rome. He had soldiers under his command. And according to Luke, and we didn't look at Luke's gospel, but according to Luke, this man was sympathetic to Jews, which, by the way, was not always the case. In fact, it was uh, highly unlikely that many of them were sympathetic to the Jews but this one was. Luke even tells us that the centurion had actually appealed to a Jewish delegation to go and to initiate the conversation with Jesus on his behalf and to even make the request. And Luke's gospel tells us that that's exactly what happened. Matthew doesn't mention that detail. Was it necessary? Uh, because eventually the man finally did come into the presence of Jesus and confront Jesus for himself. And that's what Matthew wants us to see. And he wants us to hear what took place. I want you to pay attention to what the man said. Let's look at his words. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He knew Jesus had some kind of special authority. Something greater than he had known. He said, for I also am a man under authority. So he is acknowledging this, that he has authority. Because I'm also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes. And to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. What was he saying? He was acknowledging the authority that Jesus had. And he understood 
that this authority was something greater than he had ever experienced or known before because he is asking Jesus to heal his servant. Now it says a lot about the man and about his, he's sympathetic to the Jews, he cares about his servant, and, and all of those are good, but, but that is not the point of the, of, of the, of, of the story. It's not, a, it's not the point that Matthew makes, it's not even the point that Luke makes when we read it in Luke. No, it goes far beyond that. This man understood the authority of Jesus, and he knew that to heal was something that no man could do. We put a lot of confidence in doctors. And by the grace of God and His mercy toward us, He's given us doctors and physicians and various people to care for us. And they know a lot and they do a lot. And we have access to medicines and those kinds of things. Just remember that in that day, they didn't have an x-ray machine. They didn't have ultrasound. They didn't have CAT scans. They didn't have chemotherapy. Uh, they would do surgery, but mind you, it was crude. Crude. You might as well have just gone on and just let whatever happened happen because um, things were not going to be good. I read a book back, I think it was my freshman year in college, I can't remember, but it was about... It was part of history, and it was about an account of, of an Egyptian who uh, was doing brain surgery. Someone get hit in the head, their head would swell up. They figured, well, if it's swelling, that means there's pressure, so let's figure out how to deal with that. So without any anesthetic or whatever, they actually would bore holes in people's heads to relieve the pressure. People still died, but at least they were exploring, or they cut a piece of the skull out, and I can't imagine all the ways that they would do that, but they would cut a piece of the skull out with no anesthesia and those kinds of things to relieve the pressure. People died, but they performed the surgery. We look to things like that. This man recognized that if his servant was to be healed, and Luke tells us that he wasn't just sick, the man was certain that he was going to die. That's what Luke tells us. And he knew that he had to have something beyond an ordinary man. And he saw and recognized somehow by God's grace that this man, Jesus, had this kind of authority. And he acknowledged that authority. He knew that Jesus didn't have to even come. Listen, that's the point. He didn't even have to come and make contact with his servant. That all he had to do was just say the word. Say the word. Be healed. I want you to hear this. The centurion believed that Jesus' word was sufficient. Dwell on that for a moment. That his word was sufficient. Whatever he said flowing out of his will, that was enough. His promise was enough. And that's going to be important as we look at the rest of the point of this text, which again is not about the centurion's faith. It's about what Jesus says after that. And notice Jesus' response. 
says he marveled at the faith of this man. And we would think, whoo, my goodness, this man, this man is a tremendous man. Uh, we need to realize Jesus marveled and he could. He was fully God. He was fully man. He had taken on flesh. Taken on flesh and blood. He could be amazed. Didn't mean that he didn't know. Didn't mean that it caught him off guard. It just meant that in his humanness, uh, he was amazed. And then Jesus said, Truly, I tell you that no one in Israel, with no one in Israel, have I found such faith. Now, just let me paraphrase that. Jesus said, there's not an Israelite who has at this same level understood my authority. But this man does. This man's faith is unparalleled. I want you to understand that faith is connected with recognizing the authority of, of Jesus. It begins there. But not just recognizing His authority, submitting to His authority, trusting in it to know that His Word is sufficient. All He has to do is say it, whatever it is. And don't misunderstand what's being communicated. We've already said this. This man's faith was being commended by Jesus, but that's not the point. Jesus went on to say, and this is the point. Look at what He says. He says, I tell you, Many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to hold that. This man is saying, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. Back up in chapter 7. Look at verse 24. After Jesus has completed the Sermon on the Mount, pointed to Himself as being the one who ultimately will say yes for you or no for you based on His knowledge of you and His will in changing your heart to direct Him, He says this. He said, Matthew went on to say, Everyone, Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. And he goes on to talk about that wise man and how that wise man's house did not fall, but the man who does not hear and know and do what he says, that man's house will fall. And that goes beyond all of that because it's encompassed and it's packed inside of this where Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who are they? Well, they are the first three patriarchs. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Isaac received that covenant that God had established and became a part of that covenant. Jacob had received it from God. Jacob, the son of Isaac, they are in the kingdom of heaven by virtue of the will of God in that. And then Jesus says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see it? The point that Matthew is making is that this man was representative of all those non-Jewish people who would trust Jesus. 
place their faith in Christ and enter the kingdom that was established for those whose faith is counted to them as righteousness. Now can you imagine being a Jew and hearing this? You hear the Sermon on the Mount? You're listening to what Jesus has to say. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You hear Jesus say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this Jew is hearing this and thinking, in his mind, this doesn't make any sense because God is the one who determines that. And all along the way, Matthew is saying that he is God and this is his authority and he has the power to do this and it is directed by his will. And then immediately Matthew begins to give example after example of how the authority of Jesus begins to work and begins to connect in the lives of individuals and how by God's grace they begin to see and to recognize his authority and submit to it. And the Jew would never have expected, never have expected anyone to take precedent over him. But what does Jesus say as he speaks to the man about the man? He says, I've not seen anyone in Israel who understands my authority at this level. In other words, I haven't seen an Israelite who catches this. And I haven't seen an Israelite who has had this degree of faith to trust me and my authority that my word is sufficient. What does Jesus say here? Those who claimed the kingdom based upon their ethnicity were not destined for the kingdom that they claimed, but they were destined for, what does he say? Outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, their destiny is outer darkness, a place of eternal suffering. Why? Because they lacked faith and rejected Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah. This is huge. Why? We're still dealing with outcast. And Jesus is reaching out to the outcast, and they are being saved. And His Word is sufficient. And they are being promised eternal life. They are being promised hope. You know why we sing over again every week? We have not met, I don't think, we have not met in the three plus years that we have met and that we have sung every, every service we at least sing and almost always pointedly point us in Scripture to the promise that Jesus has made of eternal life and that we will be with Him. Why? Because His Word is sufficient. That promise is certain. And we need to be reminded of it every time we meet. Why? 
because we will step this afternoon, and if not this afternoon, if we are still kind of glowing uh, here, we will step tomorrow morning into a world of work and circumstances and challenges and hardships where we have things thrust upon us in such a way that the only way that we get through is to rest in the sufficient Word of God and the promises that Jesus has made. The only way that we will get to the place to where we are able to, listen, where we are able to look ahead even unto death and lay on our deathbed with hope is to believe and trust in the sufficient Word of Christ. And that is true for Jew and for non-Jew. And the point of this text was to say to the Jew and to the world that my kingdom has no limits. My authority has no limits. My power has no limits. That it is within my will, Jesus says, that those outside of this ethnic group, the Jew, are to be in my kingdom. In John's gospel, we have these words recorded of Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep. This is the shepherd speaking. That are not of this fold. He's speaking to Jews at this time. I must bring them also. And what will they do? They will listen to my voice. He'd already said, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. They know me and they do what? They follow me. That's what he was saying. And Matthew was pointing to the reality of this even in the healing of this man that as far as we know, Jesus never saw. But in dealing with this centurion to point to and to teach my authority is over all of these. They are a part of my will. And then we're able to read what John was privileged to see in Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And you may want to point back there. It will not be the first time you've heard it. Hopefully you will get this picture. And between the throne... And the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing and as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus exercises his authority by using his power, by granting faith to people from all nations that they may be citizens of his kingdom. But what does that mean for us? Well, it means that for all of us, Jews and non-Jews, we can enter his kingdom by acknowledging his authority and humbling ourselves before him and placing our faith and our trust in him. But here's what's also clear from this text. It also means that if we do not, we also receive another promise. And that promise is an eternity and outer darkness where we will only know eternal suffering. But for us as a church, this text also has implications for our missions. For believers, as members of this kingdom, we realize that our responsibility in telling others of His authority has no geographical or ethnic, or cultural boundary. Because His authority has no boundaries. We who once were outcasts are to reach what? Outcasts. Those who are unclean. I want us to close our time with our intercession today. I was in communication with Mustafa. And, uh, I think all of us are at least familiar with his name. Uh, he is actually in northern Ghana, even now as we're meeting. Um, was just communicating with him uh, about our upcoming time together with him and some of our other indigenous workers. And he said... Uh, Pastor Jimmy said, please pray. Uh, he said, I'll be back in northern Ghana by the weekend. Uh, he said, I want to see people hear the message and believe in Jesus. Not a white race. Not a Christian culture, but a Muslim culture. Not within the confines of the boundaries of New Hanover and Pender and Brunswick County, far outside of that. Uh, and yet, that is where we go. And as we pray for Mustafa today and for the work that is taking place there, I want you to also pray uh, for Anne and Grace and Lori and Alina and myself as we prepare uh, to be there with them in June. Uh, that we will be able to operate in the course of who we are as a church to see other churches planted 
and churches planted where there are no churches, but have other churches planted that know the gospel, that preach and teach the gospel, and that assemble themselves together uh, in an ecclesiology that is consistent with what the Bible teaches so that the ministry of the Word of God will continue in that region of the world and that people will come to trust Jesus, recognizing His authority, and that lives will continue to be changed by the Spirit of God, by His will, by His power, because of His authority, until the Lord returns and establishes His kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we are people under your authority. There may be some of us who are pushing against your authority and have not yet trusted Christ. We thank you, Father, that in the course of your authority that you have granted patience toward us and that in your grace you have not struck us down and that you have not yet cast those into outer darkness but have allowed again today for them to hear of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, your authority is a prevailing authority. We're grateful today, God, that you can heal our diseases. We are grateful that you can cleanse us. And Father, as we see, we're grateful that you cast out demons. What we do know is that we should turn to you. And even today, we come to you to say, help us. Help us, we pray. We humble ourselves before you and cry out to you with thanksgiving and with a cry for mercy and help. Father, we lift Mustafa before you today. We ask God that you would grant him boldness as he proclaims the message of the gospel. We pray, Father, that your spirit who has gone before him would speak to the hearts of those who would hear this message and, Father, would fall as people have done on their faces before you, kneeling before you, acknowledging your supreme authority above all else. And in that, Father, that you would do the work as you promised you would do in Ezekiel, where their idols would be removed from them and all of their gods would be removed from them and that they would be cleansed just as the leper was cleansed. And, Father, that they would go out in proof of that cleanliness and live to bring honor and glory to you. Would you grant that? Father, we lift up Lori, Ann, and Grace, and Lena. And Father, I ask for myself that you would help us as we prepare. That Father, that you would root your word so deep into us that every statement that we would make here and there would be a reflection of having been in your presence, knowing that your word is sufficient. And would you grant us to teach your word with boldness 
and be able to communicate it clearly and that your spirit would take that word and help us as we make disciples and as we continue to encourage those who are working there and as we see churches planted, would you bless the ministry of this church for your name's sake and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.